like the I think this is a little too high. Thanks. Those of you who like the 19th century novelist Jane Austen as much as I may recall a scene in Northanger Abbey where the hero, Mr. Tilney, tries to see what he might have in common with the pretty young heroine, 17-year-old Catherine Moreland. And he asks her what she likes to read. He inquires in particular if, like himself, she's fond of history. And this puts Catherine in a state of considerable embarrassment. I wish I were, too, she burbles, but she confesses that she is not fond of history. Catherine says, I read it a little as a duty, but it tells me nothing that does not either vex or weary me. The quarrels of popes and kings with wars and pestilences on every page, the men all so good for nothing, and hardly any women at all. It's very tiresome. Now, young Catherine, we are led to believe, is something of an airhead. Nevertheless, it is certainly the case that with the exception of a saint here or a queen there or a witch there, women tend to appear in works of European history largely as bystanders rather than as historical actors in their own right. Now, it's true, the wars and pestilences Catherine Moreland found so boring affected women as much as they did men but they hardly provided a stage on which characters with whom Catherine could identify would be recorded. The actual agents and actors were men. So where were the women? Well, history, after all, is a story, a narrative. And in order to have a story, you have to have change. And what women preeminently did, that is, what their lives were most centrally concerned with, over the centuries, childbearing, child-rearing, that seemed uneventful. It seemed, in fact, not to change at all. So where could there be a story here? Well, in fact, we now know childbearing does have a history, which is why works of historical demography, the history of the changes in the birth rate, have come to be seen by historians of women as so important. But that's another story. The 19th century does begin to change this rather bland picture. It produced at least one great queen, Victoria, many female saints, among the most famous figures of their day. But even women outside of these reserved roles became much more visible, both as individuals, as virtuosa pianists and composers like Clara Schumann, you've just been hearing, actresses and divas, and especially novelists and especially in England. And these developments take place just as European culture is stressing the differences between men and women. So I want to begin today with two paintings, both from Central Europe, one at the beginning of the 19th century and the other uh, at the beginning of the 20th. The first is from 1811 by a painter with whom you are already familiar, the German, Caspar David Friedrich. And it's called Morning in the Giant Mountains in Silesia. Now, you remember Friedrich's Monk by the Sea. Here, too, we have a painting with religious references, but not to any traditional Christian narrative. Here, too, we have a sea. This is a sea of rocks. 
the rocks provide a pedestal for a crucifix. And this is a religious icon that's just been thrust into the landscape. So as a naturalistic painting, this is really absurd, crazy. Let's look at the two figures. The girl, her long white flowing gown couldn't be less suitable for the sweaty and strenuous business of mountain climbing. She is the first at the crucifix, and she has the hand of the young man. His walking stick is really hanging there quite uselessly, like a broken limb, in his other hand. And here she is, frail and delicate, but the strong one, pulling him upward. Now, is this an allegory of faith, a kind of leap of faith? And certainly he's got to have faith if he wants to make a leap like that. Perhaps you're supposed to be reminded of the poet Goethe's saying, the eternal feminine leads us onward. Or perhaps it illustrates the idea of the Italian medieval poet Dante that the image of the beloved leads man to God. Whatever Friedrich's precise meaning, there can be no doubt that the female form here is one of sublime purity. Her long flowing gown and her posture make her an analog to angels in medieval religious pictures. And she does easily something that for the young man is difficult. She is essential to getting the young man to where he wants to go. Now let's look at this painting by Gustav Klimt, 90 years later, in 1901, Judith and Holofernes. And here, too, we have a reference to a religious tradition. The Judith of the Bible, however, is a pious and chaste woman who, like Queen Esther, saves her people. But Klimt just ignores the traditional valuation of the Judith story in order to depict what is literally a femme fatale, triumphantly, with a smile of satiation, holding the head of Holofernes, her would-be seducer. Now, can we doubt that Judith here is a stand-in for woman herself? Only now, woman is seen not as man's salvation, but as his nemesis. Now, Klimt's depiction is no aberration. On Thursday, I'm going to show quite a few more paintings in the same key. What had happened over the course of these 90 years to bring about such a change? And I can't really answer that beyond saying the 19th century happened. And I admit that's not much of an answer. What both of these images have in common, however, is their assumption uh, that there is, that women is something powerful, more powerful than man, and, of course, something quite different from him. And throughout much of the century, this difference is coded positively especially in England. By the end of the century, however, it's beginning to be coded negatively, especially in Central Europe and Scandinavia, but I won't be talking about that today. That's for Thursday. What we can say is that as people became more conscious of these differences, both in the positive sense and in terms of the social and legal and political inequalities between the sexes, women suddenly cease being just a gender, but become an issue, a problem, a question, like the social question, or the Irish question, or the Jewish question. Questions that also 
are appearing on the historical stage for the first time in the 19th century. And once woman becomes problematized, that is, once their role for the, in the world is no longer simply taken for granted, sex also becomes problematized. It is no longer merely a biological event or even a moral event. It's a problem. It's a political issue whose significance irradiates other realms of life. And this change is an extremely important one. I'm going to come back to the sexual issue at the end of the lecture. The overall story is not a simple one, even if it's in the nature of courses like our survey course to oversimplify what happens. That's what we have to do here. But this story of woman allows us to spend a bit more time with the third of History Five's three big themes. You may remember one of them is the development of sovereignty and the rise of the state. Another one is religion and what happens to it, uh, secularization and religious revival. And this allows us to look at the third theme, public and private and the changing relations between the two. So perhaps it makes sense to begin with the cult of dom domesticity and the notion of separate spheres. Now, industrialization had less impact on women's work than we might have supposed, but it did have an impact on women's world by beginning to break up the family as a unit of production, the family farm, the family firm, etc. As the division of labor proceeds and modern commercial forms of organization spread, men's jobs increasingly took them out of the home. It's hi-ho, hi-ho, off to work. They go. And this means that the home is losing its economic function, that men and women are becoming more isolated, particularly in England, from each other, and that the home itself, as a consequence, is becoming feminized. This happens first in England, and it is there that we see in full bloom the idea that men and women ruled separate spheres. This was a popular idea at the time, and it was less, I think, the growth of any particular uh, uh, collection of thoughts or theories than an outgrowth of this economic commercial development. Women in the 19th century are not being pushed out of a public sphere, as some early feminist historians thought, a sphere in which they had previously participated. In fact, in some ways, you can see women more in public than before. But public has changed. Earlier, spaces like art galleries and parks, where we are, parks, and zoos uh, and theaters had once been the exclusive domain of royalty, of court life. Uh, and therefore, they were both private because, after all, uh, they belonged to the person of the ruler, the king, his household. But they were also public in that the king himself was a kind of public figure. But now these spaces, parks, zoos, etc., are understood as belonging to the public, and women were welcome there. But at the same time, a distinction between public and private is crystallizing. It's becoming clearer and more rigid. You wouldn't find scenes like this in the 19th century, where the workplace, I suppose they're conducting business there, is really the same as the home, at least not in England. So, as long as the home had been a workplace, farm, workshop, store, for commoners, court, for royalty, the notions of public-private could not be much differentiated. 
But now the home is increasingly seen as private, and these two spaces are drawing apart, leaving middle-class women, at any rate, home alone. In a sense, in control of the family's private space as never before. Now, I don't want to uh, uh, exaggerate the advantages of this. Uh, perhaps housewife neurosis, too much cleaning, too much tending, that Freud, in your reading this week, diagnoses Dora's mother as having, was no more a neurosis with sexual origins than simply the pathetic compulsions of anybody would have who is overqualified for the tiny sphere in which they're stuck. At the same time that domestic life is feminized, however, it is also being sanctified. The living room now becomes the most important room. Birthday rituals become important. Christmas takes on a whole new meaning. Formerly, Christmas was a religious feast, located in the church, not in the home. And gift-giving was something people did for the poor. It wasn't especially associated with children or the family. But Germans develop a domestic Christmas, special songs, special food, special decorations, and, of course, bringing a tree indoors. And in the 1840s, this custom, this fashion, spreads to the rest of Europe. It is introduced in England in 1841 by Queen Victoria's German husband, Prince Albert, and a write-up in the London Illustrated News contributes to this Christmas tree popularity. And already by 1843, the first Christmas cards have appeared. Within 20 years, companies are selling thousands of them. Manger scenes, which were invented in Naples in the 18th century for use in churches, now become miniaturized for home use. So the commercialization of Christmas that we keep hearing about every year. It's not a recent development. It appears in the 19th century at the very moment that the religious feast moves out of the church into the home. You could say the commercialization of Christmas begins when commercialization itself begins. What the 19th century then does is turn the majesty of the incarnation into a kind of commercial jackpot, and at the same time, an affirmation of domestic bliss you can ask yourself, is this a secularization of religion? You might say it's the spiritualization of domesticity. Now, the idealization of the domestic was something that the young Queen Victoria and her beloved German cousin and husband, Albert, with their nine children, contributed to in no small share. Uh, it was part of this 19th century idealization of the home, in, of women, and indeed of children, idealization, uh, which had definitely not been the case in previous centuries. Previous centuries had considered women to be lesser, not just physically and mentally, but morally weaker and sexually looser than men, even the 18th century. So how can we explain this idealization? I think it is part of a critique of capitalism. People are uneasy about the morality of unregulated capitalism and ruthless individualism and the materialization of a world based on getting and spending. That's Wordsworth's, Wordsworth's very damning phrase. They are really suspicious and anxious about a world that is based upon let the buyer beware. And it was 
home's very isolation from the world of commerce that turns the home in the 19th century into a place of purity. And the wife who ran it, in a well-known phrase, was the angel in the house. She was responsible for civilizing the children and cleansing through her example the husband when he returned from the grubby, immoral world of business. However, the cult of female domesticity also had its cynical uses. Just as art was used in the Renaissance to dignify and ennoble wielders of military and financial power, condottieri, bankers, so too now woman's presence could be used to dignify the results of commerce. And I don't have to remind you, but I shall, uh, of Mrs. Farsett in Hard Times, which we read last week, a woman with very distant connections to the aristocracy. She is not the angel in Mr. Bounderby's house, but she is, in Dickens's uh, playful variation, the fairy in his bank. And Mr. Bounderby is paying for this lady's upkeep while she graces his establishment with her presence. She's not adding any beauty. We, we know she's ugly. And in the 1977 BBC production, she is played by a monobrow. Uh, and you can really get that sense. Rather, it is the very extravagance of the thing, the fact that she's there, that she's expensive, that she's not doing anything that gives Bounderby his prestige. A woman who does no work at all is, of course, a status symbol to the person who supports her. She's a piece of conspicuous consumption. And Mrs. Farsett is referred to as a Greek trophy, as the spoils of war, of course, a commercial war in this case. And an, as an analog, a wife who is not working is a testimony to her husband's success in the world. Not so very different from a trophy wife today. Now, there's a considerable debate over whether the ideology of separate spheres and of putting women up on a pedestal gave them more power or less. In the 19th century, people were sure it gave them more power. Modern historians are divided. And I think probably the consequences are too individual to generalize. However, there's no doubt that a man's gentler treatment of women was an accompaniment to his own aspirations for rising, for respectability, even if you go to the very bottom of society. And I refer to the memoirs of the stonemason's daughter, Flora Thompson. Flora grew up in a rural Oxfordshire uh, village among very poor agricultural workers. And she writes in her memoirs that none of the women in her village would have dreamed of allowing their husband to fetch water from the well when she was a small girl in the 1880s. The one who did this uh, was the wife. And in the one family where the husband drew the water, Everybody ridiculed him. He was mocked as henpecked. This was women's work, heavy labor. By the late 1880s, none of the women in that hamlet were fetching their family's water. Men were also chopping wood, which wives had always done formally. And now it was the families where women were still performing heavy labor that were ridiculed because their husband was obviously unchivalrously forcing women to do what is now being defined as men's work. 
Now, so what is the cause of this redefinition of women's work in England? Not increasing education. Education's just beginning. It seems to have come from domestic servants, girls who return to the village after a stint as kitchen maids or scullery maids in the great houses of the gentry and aristocracy. And they bring back with them refined ideas from their employer about the proper way to treat a lady. And this is what we could see as a kind of democratization of respectability. The cultural differences between rich and poor, in a broad sense, are breaking down. And what we see here is the same kind of competitive emulation that made British consumers want to buy the very expensive queenswear of Josiah Wedgwood is now making them want to treat their women uh, the same way as the people on the rungs above them on the social ladder are doing. So now, if we look at the legal position of women, we don't see nearly as much change. They have a position of clear inferiority to men, much closer to the legal position of children. Now, this inferiority is much more marked in countries that had inherited Roman law and later on the Napoleonic Code, countries where that had replaced Germanic common law. We can see it particularly in family relations. Uh, you may remember in France, law required the wife to obey her husband. And the husband is given full powers over children. And even when he dies, the wife can act legally, the widow can act legally on their behalf only if she has the consent of his two nearest relatives, so basically her, her brother-in-laws. And then if she remarries, a family council decides whether she's still going to be allowed to keep her children, because after all, they belong to his family. Women's inferiority was also coded, as you know, in the definition of what constituted a marital crime. Adultery made a wife, but only a wife, liable to up to two years prison. Crimes of passion, we call them murder, were not punished as murder if they were committed by men. And the laws also placed strong restrictions on women's economic independence. In France, even if a wife had her own business, she couldn't buy or sell major things without her husband's approval. He, on the other hand, could sell, mortgage, or even give away her movable property. Not, however, her real estate. In France, land is treated very differently. And in France, the husband only has the legal use of her land. Now, even if a wife goes to court and obtains a legal separation from her husband in France, she still needed his signature for all of her business affairs. In England, which didn't have the Napoleonic Code, uh, the situation was really not too much better. Married women were considered one with their husbands, and therefore they lost upon marriage their separate property. And what happened if he turned into an alcoholic and she had to go to work? He still had control over her wages, her savings account, her pocket money. However, by the mid-19th century, English women entered the public sphere to agitate, to change these laws. And it was one of their very first appearances on the political stage. And the result is a series of 
Married Women's Property Acts, passed in the 1870s and 80s. Poor French women had to wait until 1907 for a married working woman to be permitted to keep her wages. Though the law finally did change in France then, the attitudes that had supported the old system didn't change. And so uh, these reforms of 1907 weren't legally enforced for a very long time. Now, let's look at the public sphere, which was very valued in the 19th century, the world of political power. Nowhere in Europe did women, unless they were royalty, participate in government. And I think what is kind of surprising it is it's only in England that feminists, and the feminist movement is growing up, uh, really put their main effort behind achieving political equality and the vote. German feminists were much more interested in social issues. They were fighting for equality for unwed mothers, daycare for children, access to birth control for everyone. The English women's movement, by contrast, like the American one, was rights-oriented and had much less to say about rectifying social inequalities between groups of women. So bit by tiny bit, throughout the late 19th century, English women begin to acquire some political power. In 1868, they are allowed to vote in municipal elections. Once public schools get established in 1870, women uh, get elected to school boards and other lo local elected bodies. By 1907, they actually have the right to be mayors. But that last citadel of power, and symbolically the most important, the right to vote, to sit in parliament, that eluded them. And so they began organizing on that issue. And by the 20th century, British feminists uh, had gotten to be a big movement, but then they split over the tactics of trying to achieve this goal. And a more radical branch developed, which initiated a campaign of what we've come to call civil disobedience. That is, break the law, but be willing to go to jail. And their actions ranged from such things as going off to the golf course and pouring acid on the green and ruining it for the men, or stuffing jam in the mailboxes, or taking their umbrellas and smashing London shop windows, and in one case, uh, to suicide, in which a young woman threw herself in the path of oncoming horses at the Royal Ascot uh, to call attention to the cause of women and women's suffrage. When the government arrested these women, uh, they went on hunger strikes, where uh, forcing the police to, or at least so the police said, stick feeding tubes down their noses to force feed them, feed them. It's not until 1918 that English women got the vote. And in 1918, most women in Europe, uh, where there was democracy, got the vote, even in places where there hadn't even been a suffrage movement. And ironically, in England, unlike elsewhere, even then, only married women are given the vote or women, if they're unmarried, women over the age of 28. I guess people thought that if you're 28, you're not married, you're never going to get married, and so better give you the vote. It's only fair. It's only in 1928 that this franchise for women extends to all women, all adult women in Britain. 
And I think this should remind us of how very irregular and counterintuitive progress is, and including the move of women into the public and political sphere. Uh, it makes generalizations hard. We take Germany, it's thought to be authoritarian, but votes for all women, even without a big suffrage movement before the war, are simply achieved before England, uh, the mother of parliaments. Right in 1918-1919, uh, German women all can vote. In France, the home of the rights of man and the French Revolution, women don't get the vote until 1946. In Switzerland, where universities admit women in the 1830s, this is 30 years ahead of almost all other countries, some cantons denied women voting rights until, guess, 1980s. Consequently, it's not surprising that for most women, it's the private sphere that is still the most important arena of their lives. And it's not parliament, but the whole complex of issues connected with marriage and sex that is the main focus of feminist efforts. One example is divorce reform. Now here too, the legal situation varies considerably. Divorce is pretty easy in Prussia. It's not impossible in France, though, of course, husbands' rights to divorce are much stronger than uh, the wives. In the Habsburg Empire, the state simply allowed the different religious denominations to set the rules for their own membership. So divorce was impossible for Catholics and Protestants. It was easy for Jews. In England, for, yes, Guy. you didn't get to. I mean, that's one of the things in the 19th century, and it changes only very uh, slowly and very late. Civil marriage, you get it in France, but in most other places, uh, you just have to be uh, wed by a religious ceremony, and then the, once again, the organization sets the rules. So there were very few uh, intermarriages without conversion of one to the other side. Okay, in England, Throughout most of the 19th century, marriage was a sacrament. It was indissoluble. And the only way, legal way, to get a divorce, as Stephen Blackpool in Hard Times knew, was to go to Parliament and somehow get those guys to pass a special law just for you, an act of Parliament. Very, very expensive. You had to hire a lawyer. He had to look up precedents, etc. This meant, of course, one law for the rich and one law for the poor. And it changed only after a lot of agitation in 1857 when a more generous, broader uh, divorce law was enacted. Still, it was difficult. Now, if home is becoming increasingly sanctified and increasingly feminized, that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire world outside the home is becoming more masculine. I've already mentioned in a previous lecture that the age of Darwin contrary to what its reputation is, was the great age of a religious revival. More churches were built in England during the single decade, the 1840s, than in all the previous history of England. And this revival creates a huge demand for what we would now call religious professionals. There just weren't enough men to do it, and so a whole lot of exciting new careers opened for women. Some Protestant women actually founded churches. The United States' Mary Baker Eddy founded Christian Science. 
Catholic and Protestant women became missionaries to the poor. The Salvation Army, which was founded by a Methodist clergyman, William Booth, to bring salvation materially as well as spiritually to destitute urban populations in London, offered choice places for women officers in the army. And here we see General Booth's daughter, Evangeline, as she is a general in her own right. And here are a bunch of other soldiers in the army. But while women had a commanding, uh, a bunch of commanding positions, equal positions, really, in the Salvation Army, here, too, we can see the message in this poster of gender difference, very similar to that in C.D. Friedrich's painting. Uh, what does it say here? A man may be down, but he's never out. That is, she's uplifting him. Women from England and Scotland and Sweden and Denmark and Switzerland and Germany, with the support of an organizational network, also went off, often all by themselves, to China, to Africa, to the Near East, to do mission work broadly defined, medical work, social work, teaching, etc. But not only Protestant women. To give just one example, in the mid-1880s, a little rowboat set down from a ship somewhere in the Polynesian Islands, and there three French nuns, each of them with a suitcase and a Bible, stepped off that boat. They were among the 50,000 religious, many of them women, who between 1870 and 1890, 20 years, 50,000 people, going halfway around the world to spread the faith. And they had the great likelihood of never seeing another French person again, who knows what language they thought they were going to speak. They had the certainty that they would never, ever again see their home. Now, developments like these uh, have caused historians of both Protestantism and Catholicism to speak of the feminization of religion in the 19th century. I think that's a bit of an oversimplification. In Ireland and in Belgium, in the Catholic parts of Germany and Switzerland and the Netherlands, Religious revival meant a huge growth in the number of men choosing to be priests. In France, this growth was high, uh, faster than the population itself. But in France and Germany and Ireland, the numbers of women choosing to become nuns was growing even faster than the men and therefore even faster than the population. By 1880, the numbers of French women taking religious vows exceeded male clergy. And in Germany, <clears throat> this uh, upward uh, curve quickened as the century progressed so that the probability of a woman entering a convent was four times greater in the early 20th century than it had been a half century earlier. This is a religious revival. But becoming a nun no longer now necessarily means you're going to spend a life apart from the world in a cloister. Like their Protestant counterparts, two-thirds of these young women were in the helping professions. They were teachers and nurses and social workers and ran orphanages. And in all of these places, they rose to positions of authority that were absolutely closed to them in the secular world. Now, in addition to this real flood of women into the religious professions, we can see in the Catholic Church a revitalization of the veneration of the Virgin Mary. 
And this veneration reaches its height not in the Middle Ages, but in the century roughly beginning 1850, up to 1950. And if new ways of celebrating Christmas brought what had once been confined to the church into the home and sanctifying it, these new devotions to the Virgin Mary now depicted her not just as the mother of Jesus, but as a kind of motherly comforter to all Catholics. And it brings the cult of domesticity into the heart of the Catholic Church itself. It feminizes it. Throughout this, the continent, Mary begins appearing, apparitions of Mary appear to the devout, to the Poles, to the Irish, to the Germans, and especially, as we see here, to the French. Almost invariably, she appears to girls or women. And the most famous of these appearances, it was in southwest France at Lourdes to the peasant girl Bernadette Subaru in 1858. Now Bernadette, who would soon take the veil and became one of the most famous figures in the entire century. For in spite of the initial skepticism of her parish priests, so many pilgrims began to appear at Lourdes that the government had to erect a train line just to take care of the flow. And the waters of Lourdes began to put the medical profession to shame with all of its curing of the crippled and the blind and the lame. And this uh, popularity continues to go on even to our present day. So connected with this extraordinary veneration of the Virgin Mary is another unprecedented phenomenon. Within the Catholic Church, we see women take positions of informal but real power based upon their ability to have visions, to hear the word of God or of saints. And in France and Italy and Belgium and Germany, women who experienced miraculous visions became sources of authority for a male hierarchy, priests, bishops, cardinals, these men are officially above these women, but in many cases, they allow these women to run their diocese. They go to them for advice on every decision they make. The most important decisions, you could say, in many of these places are in female hands, although few people know it outside of the clergy themselves. Now, we should ask what's happening to women who choose neither a religious career or for one reason or another, couldn't devote themselves to sanctifying the home. The percentage of women participating in the paid workforce hardly changed uh, in the course of the century. Even now, the far by far the majority of working women remain in household settings. This is especially true in France because their industrialization and commercialization is proceeding at a snail's pace. 40% of all married women in France are working for pay, but the household is still there, the typical productive unit. The small family farm, the family-run business, there the woman is behind the counter uh, or out in the field. Uh, she's not getting uh, a very big wage, but she's working somehow or other uh, for these family firms. Even in England, the main female occupation was domestic service. In fact, as late as 1850, domestic service was the largest single occupation in England, regardless of sex. And that meant that most women were employed throughout the 19th century 
who were employed were employed in the domestic sphere, in the home, even if it was usually not their own home. And I think this is not surprising, given the huge birth rates, that the demand for nannies, hired help, simply soared. Industrialization, however, didn't change the tradition defining certain jobs as either male or female. I mean, in some places it did, as I just mentioned, in that Oxford, Oxfordshire village. But in most places, they tended to be the same. Now, you might be surprised to learn not just that washerwomen remained overwhelmingly female, but in the early stages of industrialization, factory work was considered women's work because most men with other skills wouldn't take this work. Over the course of the 19th century in England, there are two pressures regarding women's labor that have to be considered, I think, antagonistic, or at least might be considered antagonistic. On the one hand, there's a movement actually to protect women and children from work, uh, particularly work that's thought to be dangerous. So the 10 Hours Act, a very important act, is passed in England in the 1840s. And it sets limits uh, on the workday, previously unlimited, at least on the workday in factories. And factories are, are singled out because there's dangerous machinery there and because the air quality is just absolutely awful and thought to be quite harmful. Uh, here is perhaps the most dangerous profession in England except for coal mining, and that's working in a match factory. Uh, they're working, these girls are working with phosphorus, and that is a death sentence. Most of them die at a very early age. A second pressure, however, in addition to this pressure uh, to protect women at work, movement I think is too strong for this second pressure, is pressure to permit women to work, and especially at better jobs outside of the factory. In the second half of the 19th century, the economy itself is beginning to create openings for women. But it shouldn't surprise us, I think, that these are, tend to be jobs in what we now call the service sector. And was there such a big difference between old-style domestic service and the professional service sector that's developing? Uh, sometimes you could say not so as you'd notice. It's a very fluid distinction. Let's take teaching, which is the first professional job in England that women were allowed to enter. The first teachers are governesses, basically live in tutors, and they lived a very constricted life. Here is the private space, the only private space of a governess, a kind of attic bedroom where she can be by herself. Was a governess a servant, one of the staff, or was she an educational professional? And that's an, a question that the Victorian equivalents of Miss Manners had a great deal of difficulty answering. And as every reader of Jane Eyre knows, the job of governess was often a glorified form of domestic servitude. The question probably hung on the question of qualifications. And for most governesses, their only professional qualification for the job was the fact that they had been carefully brought up in a genteel family and were literate and had good manners. It's only in the second half of the 19th century that training institutes spring up to educate girls to be teachers and governesses. And nursing is equally ambiguous. 
though it becomes less so thanks to the work of Florence Nightingale in the 1850s. Now, Nightingale is a young woman of gentle birth who became famous in the Crimean War as the Lady with the Lamp, ministering to British casualties in Scutari. Uh, and here's a series of pictures of her. But note the professional uniform of the nurse, and she established the Red Cross in England. It's absolutely not different, except for the Red Cross, uh, between a nurse and a domestic servant. servant. And here is a non-Red Cross set of nurses, and you see they too look exactly like domestic servants. By and large, the effort to improve jobs for women was aimed less at allowing women to enter jobs previously reserved for men than at establishing clear professional standards for the jobs they already held, raising the prestige of those jobs. A third uh, occupation in the service sector appeared with the invention of the typewriter in the 1880s. And immediately, private schools sprang up to teach women typing and stenography. And the uh, uh, Sir Al Isaac Pickman had already invented a system of shorthand in 1837, which had spread throughout England and the United States. And some historians have looked at the typewriter and said, well, no wonder. Uh, this is creating lots of opportunity for women uh, because this is a job suitable for their fine motor coordination and physical strength. If that's the reason, you've got to wonder why women hadn't been able to manage a pen and pencil when the male office clerks uh, were taking those same jobs. Why did it take the, the typewriter to let women in? In fact, my answer is by the 1880s, office work is expanding so fast that even women are acceptable, just like religion is expanding so fast that there are more and more opportunities for women. Now, retail was the fourth service industry that became the domain of women. And, and retail itself, as you know, is a relatively new thing. Rural societies don't have it. They have what you see here. Actually, this is Vienna. Uh, markets. Producers come themselves and offer their goods to sell or barter. European cities also, even in the 18th century and earlier, had a few shops that made things to order. Customers would come in, put their money down in advance. But with the monetization of the economies in the 18th and particularly the 19th century comes retail. Pre-made goods put on display for unknown clients. And retail comes into its own with the rise of the department store. And here Paris is the pioneer with the Bon Marché in 1852. But this idea caught on and just spread everywhere, including the New World. Department stores are, were places of fantasy. They were made of materials like, as we see here in Amsterdam, glass and metal, which allowed architectural features to be possible that had never been possible before. And they create a whole setting. This is a kind of early mall, as you can see where people want to go simply for the aesthetic experience. And goods are now on display that nobody has bespoke, ordered in advance, a vast variety of goods that most people had never even seen before and much more than any single person could possibly need to buy. Here we have Wanamaker's Atrium in Philadelphia. 
And I think it's amazing how stable this architectural uh, form has been. Uh, I think we can probably say that the department store has by now run more or less to the end of its product cycle, but the atrium is still going strong at malls uh, throughout the world. So the department store o offers up a dream world, a vision of a seemingly limitless profusion of commodities. And the potential purchaser, and we now call that person a consumer, becomes a kind of audience who is being entertained by these wonderful commodities. And women, and these stores are designed particularly for women in this growing middle class, no longer now simply go to market uh, to purchase something they need. They go shopping. That is, they go to find out what it is they really want. So you have to ask Freud's question, his famous question, what do women really want? Well, the stores are there to inflame their desires. And just as important, the department store also introduces an entirely new set of social interactions, a radical departure from fairs and bazaars, as anyone who's ever traveled in other parts of the world certainly know. Women now have the freedom to browse, to look over what they might want, the liberty to indulge in dreams without anybody tugging their sleeve and telling them they should, what do they want to buy, do they want to buy? But in return for getting this freedom to wander around, touch and look at things, they give up the freedom to actively participate in establishing what the price will be. They have to accept the price that's, ex that's on each one of these things. This, this whole department store thing is too big for people to bargain over every price. So there's price tags on all of this. There's a set of prices fixed. So the active verbal war, traditional, between customer and seller, bargaining, haggling, this was formerly an accepted part of the process. Now it is replaced by the passive mute response of the consumer to the things themselves, not to the salesman, but to the things. And that means that you don't need a really practiced salesperson, an aggressive seller. Salesmanship is now replaced by set design, literally window dressing, retail jobs. Here's, I, I couldn't find a 19th century version and not really many uh, 20th century versions. But retail jobs could be given now, since the objects sell themselves, to relatively demure and indeed passive young girls. Uh, and what, are they ha what kind of talent do they necessarily have? Basically, their main virtue is honesty. They're not going to steal from you. They don't play any role in pri the price-setting process. Their function is simply service. So we see that with this new retail, both sides of the marketing process, purchasing and selling, are being feminized. But while we're talking about professions outside the home, I know you want to hear a few words about the oldest profession. And this was a profession that was also still very much, indeed more than ever, on people's minds. Now, prostitution wasn't new in European history, but in the 19th century, it begins to be perceived not just as a moral problem, but as a medical problem. 
uh, and a social problem. Now, why? What's the difference? I think the difference probably is the growth of cities, bringing large concentrations of people together. It is cities that allow a market for sex not only to develop but to be visible. It makes prostitutes visible. Uh, people estimate that there was one prostitute for every 12 men in London. Uh, that may not be the case. It may have just seemed that way, but that's uh, the most recent figure by historians of prostitution. Okay, so prostitutes become more visible, and they seem in this urban setting more dangerous because wherever you find large numbers of prostitutes, there are large numbers of other social undesirables, pimps, cut purses, winos, thieves of every sort, a growing underworld. So fear of crime and fear of disease come together to turn prostitution into what was called the great social evil. Now, medical men, military authorities, government officials, all three of these groups worried about the spread of venereal disease, especially syphilis. They were worried about it hitting the defense establishment, soldiers and sailors, killing off the national defense. And they blamed prostitutes for its spread. So France responded by trying to put the regulation of prostitution on a scientific, bureaucratic basis. And Paris becomes the first city in the Western world to attempt to do this. And it did it by first confining the trade to certain districts, second by licensing the women involved, and third by subjecting them to regular medical inspection. Now these regulations didn't reach all branches of the trade. Concubines, in England they're called kept women, are outside the state's purview. Why? Because they're considered private matters. It's not taking, nothing is happening on the street, so they're not a social threat. It's the social, not the moral evil, that the French more or less are addressing here. Now, in 1857, an English doctor, William Acton, published a book advocating the Paris system of regulation. And Acton described in glowing colors how in Paris, a candidate for prostitution would register, first with the Bureau of Morals. And she might do this voluntarily, or she might be subpoenaed, the word was requisitioned, by the Bureau if she'd been caught streetwalking. And there, she would declare her name, her birthplace, her occupation, her domicile. And then she was, at least in theory, given a searching cross-examination. Was she married or single? Was she, did she have a mother and father living? What was their occupation? Did she live with them? If not, why not? When did she leave? Did she have children? How long had she lived in Paris? Had she ever been arrested? If so, why? Had she previously been a prostitute? What was her education? Did she have venereal diseases? What were her motives? After she's gone through the Bureau of Morals, she proceeds to the Bureau Sanitaire, and she's medically examined. And if she's found to be a virgin or underage, she would be sent to a religious establishment. If she was found to be diseased, she would be consigned to a hospital. Steps were taken, Dr. Acton assured his English readers, to verify her reply. For example, a letter would be sent to the mayor of her hometown 
with an appeal to her parents to come to Paris and redeem her. And a vast bureaucratic apparatus is called into play. If her relatives were willing to receive her, she would be also sent home at public cost. Now, naturally, frequently, these girls refused to tell what the names of their parents were. Uh, and sometimes they wouldn't know where their parents were. Cases where relatives actually did claim their wayward daughters were apparently pretty rare. Most of these girls had probably run away from home to begin with. Not to worry, Acton assured his readers that if the girl indicated that despair or some personal problem had caused her to fall, every attempt would be made to warn her and to change any of her intentions, to enroll. But if she did change her mind, well, she would be put in a reformatory at public cost. Now, since Acton wanted the British to introduce this system, he was clearly trying to paint it in the most humane light. The alternative, if the girl chose, in fact, to go on with prostitution instead of going to the reformatory, she would be enrolled as a public prostitute. If she were totally destitute, she would be registered to a licensed house, a brothel. And there's a picture here. Whoops. As a kind of marked and numbered serf or chattel. And there she could, of course, be used or abused within certain limitations at the discretion of the brothel owner and his or her clientele. But if she had enough capital to pay for housing of her own, she would be given an ID card as a public woman with the regulations of her trade, uh, and they would be printed on the reverse side, very much like if you ride the San Francisco cabs, the cabbie will give you his card with his, the rules of his trade on the reverse. A public woman with an ID then had to present herself to the clinic for examination every 15 days. They were also subject to other regulations. They were forbidden to solicit during daylight. They had to wait a half an hour until after uh, the street lamps were lit. They were not allowed within a 25-yard radius of churches or public places like the botanical gardens uh, or on certain streets. They were required to be decently clad so as not to attract too much attention. Similar regulations were enacted elsewhere on the continent, for example, the city of Hamburg. In England, however, the problem of prostitution led to the rise not of one, but of two humanitarian reform movements working in opposite directions. On the one hand, there were scientists like Dr. Acton interested in controlling disease and trying to professionalize the prostitute. And Acton argued that the typical prostitute shouldn't be seen as fallen. She was a perfectly normal woman pursuing without shame what was for her station in life, the working class, the most remunerative job open. Selling her body was simply the result of a cost-benefit analysis. Usually, he insisted she didn't die of drink or disgrace, meaning suicide, as so many sentimental novels depicted. Rather, after a few years in the life, prostitutes returned to normal society, got married, and raised a family. That's what he said. I asked, how did he know? Now, these scientists argued that just as the state is now beginning to protect children and women and workers in factories by regulating their employment, it should intervene here 
and protect prostitutes by introducing the French system. And thanks to agitation by men like Dr. Acton, Parliament passed reform legislation in the 1860s called the Contagious Diseases Control Acts, or CD Acts. This was a system similar to the Parisian one used in dockyards and garrison towns in England and Ireland to prevent the spread of disease among soldiers and sailors. Now, prostitution itself was not illegal in England, but prostitutes, if found to be infected, could be confined to a prison hospital as long as six months. No sooner had these CD acts been passed, however, than they ran afoul of a different set of humanitarians whose arguments reached diametrically opposite conclusions. And they demanded the repeal of CD regulations. Now, part of this anti-CD Act movement grew out of traditional moral convictions. Part of it, however, grew out of the greater modesty of the English about the female body. The CD Acts, some said, gave the state, that is the police, intolerable powers to humiliate and degrade innocent women to invade their most intimate privacy. Women could be arrested merely on suspicion of prostitution and then be subjected to a humiliating genital examination by male doctors. And there were, in fact, highly publicized cases where the police had done just that, in fact, uh, causing young girls to lose their virginities on the examination table. How, these reformers asked, in a dockyard town, is a policeman going to be able to tell the difference between a working-class woman walking down the street with her sailor boyfriend and a streetwalker who had just succeeded in picking up a customer? third part of the repeal to the movement to repeal the CD Acts grew not out of a concern with sexual morality per se or modesty, but out of a humanitarianism that was part and parcel of the same kind of developments to which Darwin attributes the growth of morality in general. That is the extension of human sympathy to people that up until now had been outside the purview of these sentiments. The sympathy that middle-class women are now feeling for working-class women. But also, and perhaps just as important, the recognition of the full humanity, not just of innocent women who might be accidentally arrested, but of the prostitutes themselves. And these opponents of the CD Acts pointed out that prostitution wasn't simply one economic option like any other. It was a condition similar to slavery over which the prostitute, because she was poor and young and dependent, had no personal control, either to go into this profession or to come out of it, and precious little control over the conditions of life within it. So in the view of these reformers, it wasn't venereal disease that was the great social evil, but prostitution itself. Now, this view of prostitution as an evil growing out of capitalism had already begun to gain publicity in, the, in 1839 when the French socialist Flora Tristan visited London with the express purpose of investigating the problems of women. She was guarded by two male companions armed with canes, and she toured the Waterloo Road district, inhabited almost exclusively by prostitutes and pimps. Her book, Promenades in London, was published in 1840, and it records her shock particularly at the gin palaces, scenes of unspeakable orgies 
she said, for the delectation of upper-class males. In her conclusion, prostitution is the most hideous of the afflictions produced by the unequal distribution of the world's goods. Now, this strain of opinion gained further steam in 1885 when the journalist W.T. Steed decided to expose the ease to which any kind of depravity could take place for those with money. He actually purchased in London, undercover, a 12-year-old girl. And he published the account in a series of articles in the Pell-Mell Gazette, the maiden tribute of modern Babylon. Modern Babylon is London. And he used his trial to publicize this issue even further, making the argument that not the prostitute, but the men of wealth and respectability who ruined the lives of the unfortunates should be punished. For this, he went to jail for three months. Uh, this fate escaped Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, who did the same thing, bought two Cambodian girls in January 2004 for similar purposes. Human trafficking isn't illegal there. Now, a fourth strand in the opposition to the CD Acts, uh, and these strands are not mutually exclusive, was based on feminism. And this was a repeal movement led by Mrs. Josephine Butler, who took an explicitly feminist position. Butler said, even if the persons inspected are really prostitutes, and even if in some sense they are voluntary professionals, the CD acts are intolerable because they legalize a double standard. Men carry disease as much as women, yet men are allowed to go their merry way unmolested by the police. Why should men get off? Now, Butler was thought to be a fanatic screamer by many, including many women. They were embarrassed at her making waves or even talking about this. But she also became quite a celebrity, an international figure. She made speaking tours across the continent and in the United States, agitating for the end of state regulation. In England, she succeeded in making deregulation the first truly feminist cause. And by 1886, Butler's campaign had got all the CD acts repealed. A great victory for sexual equality. A defeat, perhaps, for public health. Now, her agitation laid the foundation for a much broader feminist movement. British suffragettes called, and this is their slogan, for votes for women, purity for men. Now, this slogan has always been easy for a modern generation to make fun of because the links between voting and purity bring together two things that in our day seem to have nothing to do with each other. But the slogan is only ridiculous from a viewpoint that takes the male as the norm. For men, power and sexuality are, of course, distinct. Sex is closer to questions of consumption than questions of politics. But early feminists very much linked questions of power, of which the franchise was one aspect, with questions of sexuality. Because for women, sexuality resulting in pregnancy was inseparably linked with dependency. And it's no accident that at a time when prostitution was perhaps the single largest category of female paid employment, the position of wife was so frequently likened by critics of existing society to that of a prostitute. And as you well know, uh, many women married their husbands not for love, but only to have 
some means of support. What was that, critics argued, but selling their bodies? Owen said that, Fourier said that, Dickens said that. What else does Louisa Gradgrind do but prostitute herself for the sake of her brother? A girl can go anywhere, Tom Gradgrind says. Her marriage to Bounderby, it does just as well as another, she says. And this brings me to the subject of the famous Victorian sexual morality. European society's demand for chastity wasn't new. Chastity had been demanded for centuries. In face-to-face -face communities, chastity can be enforced and was, at least enforced retroactively through shotgun weddings. But in this much more mobile society, sexual restraints had to be internalized if traditional morality were to survive. The taboos and restrictions on what could be said and done with regard to sexual behavior in England and America, where internalization reached its height, they've been exaggerated, and they're easy to ridicule. But in many ways, it was these taboos that made it possible for middle and upper class girls in England and America to live much less confined lives than their counterparts on the continent. What Victorian prudery did was in erect an invisible protective wall around women, a kind of moral burqa, if you will. And it created a space for them, allowing them to move freely among men, to converse with them, to travel alone, no one challenging their chastity. Indeed, it allowed them to do all kinds of things that would have been unthinkable for nice women on the continent, where no such puritanism existed. Remember, Lady Mary uh, Wortley Montague had argued that the burqa, the chador of Turkish women, allowed them incredible freedom in Constantinople. Well, this is a moral version of that. The ubiquitous duenna accompanying Spanish, Italian, and even nice French girls wherever they left the confines of the parents' home was unnecessary for the English girl. Anglo-American prudery and emancipation were in complicated ways linked. And it's no accident that it was in England where concern with the sexual aspects of morality was greatest and where prudery was probably carried to the greatest lengths, that concern over the woman question, the question of women's individuality and equality, also reached the peak of the 19th century. Victorians espoused a single standard of sexual behavior to a degree absolutely unknown on the continent. And this is a really pure standard. Now, the reasons for the single standard were partly connected to the religious revival, which was particularly strong in England. The seventh commandment against adultery is supposed to work for men as well as women. Partly, it was connected to the cult of domesticity, which sanctified the home as the most important part of life. And through the ideology of separate spheres, makes purity a kind of natural attribute of women. Female purity was so idealized, however, because it's thought to be, in Victorian times, active in purifying people coming in connection with it, in contact with it. And sometimes, of course, this ideology goes to ridiculous lengths. You see it in Dickens's sugary uh, heroines. Agnes in, in David Copperfield is always pointing upwards. Uh, Stephen Blackpool says of Rachel in Hard Times, his guardian angel, thou makest me see with a better eye. But just think, 
where women are supposed to be angels, a judgment is levied against anyone who violates them. Therefore, men must behave. No raping a girl who refuses to marry you so that she'll be forced to do so. This is common and socially tolerated practice in Southern Europe and it continued in Sicily until the 1990s and for all I know it still does. The single standard also reinforced was also reinforced by a weird set, to our mind, of medical ideas which were circulating then. In 1857, the same Dr. William Acton who sponsored the CD Acts published a medical textbook entitled Functions and Diseases of the Reproductive System. Naturally, he's only looking at the male reproductive system. Now, in this book, he strongly cautions men against the dangers of any but very moderate sexual activity. Masturbation, out. Even sex in marriage must be carefully rationed. Otherwise, he said, you'll ruin your health. Now, Acton wasn't unique. His views didn't disappear. As late as 1897, the Encyclopedia of Social Reform, in an article entitled Degeneration, a biological term, stated, and I quote, the effects of venereal disease have been treated at length, but the amount of vitality burned out through lust has never been, and perhaps never can be, adequately measured. So you can see that there's a kind of sexual economy imagined here, a kind of microeconomy, not unlike the political economy governing the larger world. The body is regarded as a productive system with only a limited amount of energy at its disposal. Scarce resources have to be husbanded. Semen was acquainted equated in the metaphors of the day with wealth and money. And the slang word for ejaculation was spend. If you spend too much, you will run out in the body as in the economy. Your fate will be bankruptcy, a.k.a. impotence, and the ruin that comes and threatens all big-time spenders. Now, this sexual economy is an economy based on scarcity. In novels, sexual dissipation ruins the health of a character. It is usually written all over his face with sort of dark circles under his eyes and general, it's described as dissipation. These views should be seen against contemporary social backgrounds. First of all, the real economy is still based on scarcity. Secondly, mass personal, the mass personal and cultural experience of poverty that so many already and still no. Third, a population explosion threatening to impoverish all of England. And fourth, the general step everyone had that one misstep can result in ruin. Now, it's easy to laugh at these economic ideas being taken from the commercial sphere to sexual life. What interests me is not that they were wrong, but how they functioned, probably unconsciously, to equalize the relations between the sexes. Because for women, after all, the relation between sex and the economy has never been a mere metaphor. Pregnancy, even in marriage, often meant poverty. Outside of marriage, it meant total ruin. And this was true until the 1960s, when a truly reliable method of contraception was first developed. Likewise, loss of chastity for women equaled loss of value in the marriage market. The economic metaphor here was she was cheap. 
And loss of chastity would also always mean loss of value so long as the inheritance of property was tied to blood relationships whose validity needed to be indisputable. Okay, so for women, chastity meant economic value. That is certainly clear. But before the Victorian era, no one had ever suggested that a man's value, his virility, declined in proportion to his sexual activity. What the Victorian misunderstanding of male physiology did was to take woman's condition and her sexual vulnerability and universalize it. This prudery worked toward a single standard, not just of morality, but of optimum healthy behavior. So views like Atkins about the unhealthiness of too much sex functioned psychologically to restrict male opportunities, to freight it with heavy penalties, the penalties of impotence, of disease, of loss of vitality, even virility. And it's interesting that in Austria, where women were by no means as emancipated as in England, Freud likewise believed masturbation was bad for health. In fact, most of the medical profession did in the 19th century. But Freud also believed, according to a questionnaire he filled out, that chastity is impossible for most normal people. In fact, for him, the more dangerous health hazard comes from abstinence. Now, this was an ideology, if I may say so, that would offer few protections for the vulnerable, for young girls like Dora, whom you're reading about this week. In fact, it provided a license for overriding their refusal. But the very strong disapproval of the 19th century English and Americans about sex outside of marriage operated as a kind of informal, unconscious equivalent in the sexual sphere to the 10 hours act passed by parliament in the economic sphere, limiting the length of the legal workday. In both cases, we see society, its representatives, intervening in the free contract between two sides who are nominally equal by law, but who are inherently unequal, laborers and employers, women and men. And society does this by placing artificial, unnatural restrictions on the strong. Now, people might say that the parties concerned don't want these restrictions. Many workers complained they didn't want the 10-hour limit on their workday because they got paid by the hour. And maybe some women hated to be cast as pure, although we don't see much evidence of it. Certainly most capitalists, and perhaps many men, would have preferred a free market in labor as well as sex. But there is in reality never a wholly free market of equally competitive consumers and producers, the way uh, political economists put forth in their abstractions. Nor is the sexual relationship ever one simply of biology between equal individuals with equal biological needs, unmediated by the roles and constructions of society. Such interventions and restrictions, either by way of legislation or by these new social codes, however jarring to individuals, strengthened the weak against the strong. By insisting that truly feminine women were naturally pure and that masculine men would be doomed if they followed their predatory instincts, the Victorians artificially intervened to help equalize the relations between the sexes by restricting opportunity psychologically, if not physically, and creating fears of impotence and degeneration they set up intangible barriers against the sexual exploitation of women, 
which, however imperfect, contributed immeasurably to the English woman's dignity and freedom. I made it on time. <laughs>